You know, this is actually quite funny because she's just quoted the passage that our podcast is about today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she's applying it to national holidays. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. This week, we continue our walk through Galatians 4, focusing on verses 8 through 11. Last week, we spent time in verses 1 through 7, where Paul made the point that before Christ came, we were held in custody under the law, waiting for faith to come. He likened that condition to young children who lived as slaves under the tutelage of their pedagogues, even though they were full heirs. When these children came of age, they were no longer subject to their pedagogues. And so too, when Christ came, we were no longer held as slaves under the tutelage of the law, but we became as full sons, adopted by God and freed forever from the bondage of the law. In verses 3 and 4, we read, So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world, Last week, we saw that the phrase elemental things of the world contains multifaceted meaning. It not only conveys the idea of fundamental building blocks, but also the idea of spiritual forces in the heavenly places, which Paul also speaks of in Ephesians 2, when he describes unbelievers as walking after the course of the world influenced by the prince of the power of the air at work within them. When we think of the fundamental building blocks which the Jews were held in bondage under, we think of the Mosaic Law, which exposed humanity's fundamental nature and need for a Savior. And when we think of the fundamentals holding Gentiles in bondage, our minds might easily go to general revelation in Romans 1, as we think of how their false religions and worldviews taught them to worship nature or their perceptions of gods or spirits behind various aspects of nature and seasons. This week, Paul will combine these understandings of elemental principles with a shocking but God-inspired expose on the nature of returning to the law to earn favor with God. So grab your Bibles and your coffee and join us for another conversation in Galatians. But before we get started, we just want to remind you that we love hearing from you. You can write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com for lots of great resources to help you as you unpack your Adventist worldview and replace it with biblical truth. You can sign up there for weekly emails delivering new material to your inbox every Friday. You can also find transcripts for this podcast and links to the YouTube channel to this podcast and to donate to the ministry should you feel called to do so. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and please leave a review wherever you listen as it helps expand our reach. Now, Colleen, here's my question. Okay. <laughs> As an Adventist, what did you think it meant to be known by God? Well, I think that I always had the sense that being known by God meant He knew my thoughts, He saw my heart, He knew if I was sinning in my head, and He knew if I intended to please Him. I didn't think of it as any kind of intimate knowing, like the New Testament describes, I didn't understand the new birth. I just thought it meant basically that God could see right through me. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't a comforting thought, except when I felt like people misunderstood me. And then I'd think, well, God will get them someday because he knows that they misunderstood me and that I didn't mean that. 
So there was some comfort in feeling like this all-knowing, all-seeing eye of God could see what was really going on. And I could be vindicated or squashed depending depending on whatever he saw. And it was all measured by my own perspective, you know, like what I thought I'm, I was doing and what I thought I intended. He could see that I was sincere, or he could see if I had lapsed into insincerity. I think that's what I thought it meant. What did you think? You know, I, I think of the words, he's making a list, checking it <laughs> twice, yeah. going to find out who's naughty or nice. It was definitely related to the investigative judgment. God knows you. He knows what you're doing. He knows how you're rebelling and how you're falling short and what you need to do. I also knew that there were verses that talked about God knowing the people who loved him. But I know that if you loved him, you keep his commandments, which meant (laughs) the Ten Commandments. I believed that knowing did not automatically mean a relationship. And also that I had the ability to get his attention. Oh, that's interesting, Nikki, and I think significant. I would be capable of pushing him away, but I was also capable of grabbing his attention and uh, it gave me the space to to believe I had the power to manipulate God, not in a nefarious way, but Mm -hmm. the full conclusion is... You're manipulating him if your behavior can elicit anything from him at all. Yes. And I would say that that matches my own perception too. I wouldn't have put it in those words, but that's absolutely true. Look at me. I kept the Sabbath. I got the floors done. And look at me here. So-and-so misunderstood me and spoke nastily to me, and I managed not to react. So see how good I am. And how many Adventists do we know about who will say, I ate right. I drank eight glasses of water a day. I exercised regularly and I have cancer. Oh, yes. And God gets measured by that. You know, we think that if we do these things, then he owes us these things. And when it doesn't happen, confusion, you know, surrounds you. I remember knowing somebody many years ago when I was teaching at Gem State Academy, and this person was dying of breast cancer at the age of 34. She had been an Adventist missionary. She had, you know, done all the right things. But I remember her in her last months worrying and feeling guilty and blaming herself for her cancer because she had had chicken a few times. (laughs) And I also think about my mother-in-law just months before she died, six months before she died. She was in a nursing home. She had congestive heart failure. She had a very serious case of celiac disease that had really debilitated her because she would not eat meat and would only eat eggs if she became so sick that she could hardly function. So she was a vegan and she was trying to maintain with celiacs, a really serious case, without meat to keep her going. And she was very ill. And I remember her brother, who was five years older than her, coming to see her there. And he walked into the room. Now he had his own health problems. And she looked at him and said, you should be here and I should be there. And she was angry. She was angry at God because she had done it all right. And here she was in worse physical shape than her older brother, who had spent much of his life ignoring the health message. So yes, we can get God's attention. And we had a reason to be mad if it didn't pan out like all of our instruction had told us it should. 
<laughs> going back to the picture of Santa, you know, <laughs> it makes you think of the child who comes from a poor family, but he wrote his note to Santa and he woke up Christmas morning and he didn't have his one wish. But the reality is he doesn't know the truth. The problem isn't Santa. The problem isn't that he isn't loved. It's that he doesn't know the truth. And we didn't know the truth. No, we didn't. That's so well said. That sums it all up, Nikki. You have to know the truth. You have to know the truth to understand what it is you're seeing around you, what it is that's happening to you, who it is that God is, and you can know the truth. He has revealed it in His Word, but we have to be willing to submit our minds to it. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to talk about in a way that makes sense to an Adventist, because I know how I would have argued with these ideas. I would have. I mean, I read these books in the Bible as an Adventist and missed what they were saying. Because we didn't want to believe what they were saying. That's true. You know, the passage we're looking at today is a tough passage. It's a hard one to accept. But if our doctrine on Scripture says that all of it is inerrant in the original language and that it's clear and that it's trustworthy and authoritative, then we have to take the words we're looking at today and we have to accept them and believe them. Absolutely. Would you read our passage for us, Nikki? It's Galatians 4, 8 to 11. It's not long, but it's packed. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things, to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. That's really a serious passage. Yeah, it is. In the previous verses, Paul has just explained the role of the law, which had been given to Israel, saying it had held them in bondage and custody until they came of age. And coming of age in Paul's understanding and in his explaining, is having faith in Christ, being born again. So, he's explained that process as it was for the Jews who were under the law. And now he is talking to these Gentiles, again, who are Christians but had never been Jews under the law. But the context of this book is that the Judaizers had come in and were trying to impose the law on their lives as Christians, saying you can't fully be Christian if you don't accept the Jewish law and the history of Judaism. So, Paul is making an argument that that's not the case for Gentile believers. And in the passage we're reading today, he's taking these Gentile believers and saying, think back to before you became believers. And he says, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. Now, he has explained that the Jews had been enslaved to the law, and now, like you also said in your introduction, he is explaining that the Gentiles had been enslaved to those who are not gods. So, what had they been enslaved to? Paganism. They had a pile of gods. (laughs) And it's interesting that he says, you were slaves to those which by nature are not gods. He doesn't say that they are not spirits. He doesn't. In Ephesians 2, when he's talking about how we all walked before we were born again, he says that, that we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We were enslaved to darkness. Yeah. And they were in the form of paganism. Yes. 
which was multiple gods. Mm-hmm. Now, as Christians, they're worshiping the one God who's sovereign over all. But he is reminding them that their false worship of those false gods before they trusted in Jesus had enslaved them. He's reminding them, you were slaves when you worshiped anything other than the true God of heaven, who's manifested himself in his son, Jesus. And then he says in verse 9, but now, don't you love his but nows? <laughs> but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you are turning back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Well, there's a whole lot in this verse that we need to unpack. But I want to look first at when he's talking about, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by Him. How do you explain that, Nikki? What does it mean to come to know God? How did the Galatians come to know God? And why does he make that qualifying statement, or rather to be known by Him? Well, they came to know God through Paul's ministry. He had traveled and taken the gospel to the Gentiles. And we know from Scripture that no one seeks out God. Right. It's not in our nature to seek out God. And if you're listening to this and you're saying, I seek God, I want to know God, you need to know that's because God is drawing you. That's not because your nature is driving that. We read in other letters written by Paul that God knows those who love him. In 1 Corinthians 8.3, he says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Well, we know that we love God because he first loved us. So God is the one who draws, who reveals himself to us. And then we believe and he causes us to be born again. And then there's this intimate knowing he comes and dwells in us and we in him. And that is what it is to be known by God. And it's something I did not understand as an Adventist, even if I had read the words, and I did, even when I read words about the Holy Spirit indwelling and sealing those who believe, that was metaphorical, but I had it in my head that belief was accepting everything I'd been told in Adventism. Jesus died, um, he rose from the dead, and we keep the Sabbath, and we keep the food laws, and the, and the law is there as our rule of faith and practice. I didn't understand what it meant to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit in a literal way, Mm -hmm. even though I understood that the Word said that. So, I was also struck by the fact that he made this comparison between you know God or rather are known by God. It reminded me of 1 Corinthians 13, 12 and 13, where in that famous love chapter, Paul says, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. And I see Paul here explaining to the Corinthians the same idea that he's saying to the Galatians, but with a little more detail. Yes, we know God when we've been made alive and indwelt by Him. He reveals Himself to us, and He knows us intimately. But we are still bound in flesh that has a law of sin in it, as he explains in Romans 7. So, that's his point when he says in this last verse of 1 Corinthians 13, But now faith, hope, love abide these three. Well, Nikki, faith and hope are things that God gives us so we can trust and believe in what we don't see. Mm -hmm. We have faith that He is coming back. 
We hope, and that's not a wish, that's a certainty, Mm -hmm. but we have the hope that we will eternally be with Him. That's what His Spirit in us guarantees, our eternal future. But it's not in person yet. It's in spirit, but our bodies are still not glorified. So our faith and our hope are what carry us through this time of being eternally alive, but still locked in a mortal body. Because then He says, we also walk in love. These three are here with us, abiding with us now. But the greatest of these is love. Love outlasts faith and hope. Because when we're with Him in person, when He comes back for us and gives us glorified bodies, there's no need any longer for hope and faith because it will now be fully realized and the love will still be there. <laughs> So, this is what Paul is talking about, I think, here in verse 9, when he says, you know God, or rather are known by Him. God isn't limited in what He knows of us, as we are limited in what we can see of Him. Contained in the first half of that sentence is the amazing truth for those who have been created new. I mean, there is so much. You could spend an entire podcast just talking about now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, it's amazing what's packed in there. And then to see that contrasted with now their desire to turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles. That's right. It's crazy, isn't it? Mm. I mean, when you really think about what these things mean, how could the Galatians have been turning back? But now we have to ask, what is it they're turning back to? They had not had the law as pagans, had they? No. Mm-mm. So now when Paul says to the Galatians, but you're turning back, what is it for them that we would understand that they would be turning back to? Well, if we we're thinking of them going back to something they were already a part of, we'd think of paganism. Right. And all those elemental things that you talked about. Mm-hmm. The sun, the moon, the stars, the things they made, the things in nature that they would worship, the spirits behind those things that they called gods. That would be what would be turning back for them. But Paul is actually making a different application here. What's he saying? He's referring to them being lulled into law-keeping. By the Judaizers. By the Judaizers. It takes me back to that one question he wanted to know from them at the beginning of chapter 3. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And he asks them, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So what they're going back to is law-keeping for sanctification, yes, law-keeping yes. for perfection, and that is being called pagan. He's equating it with pagan worship. Nikki, this is shocking. And I remember when I realized this a few years ago, it's like, oh my goodness, this is serious. He's calling going back to the law after you've received the spirit of Christ. He's calling that the same thing as going back to worshiping false gods. It's a demonic deception because it's a return to unbelief. Yes. So for the Jews, the Jews who were at that time living under the law, they were the unbelieving Jews. They rejected their Messiah. Yeah. So for the Gentiles to now go back to that law keeping, they're going into the lifestyle of the unbelieving Jew. That's a deception to pull them away from the truth of the gospel. And this is not how the Galatians had come to know God. 
They had not come to know God through the law. They had not come to know God through setting aside their pagan gods and adopting the Jewish law. No, both of those were elemental principles for the people they served. (laughs) The law was the elemental principles that helped the Jews understand who they were and who God was and that they were rebelling against a holy God. The pagan gods were the elemental things, the sun, the moon, the stars, the elements of nature that the Galatian pagans had worshipped. You can't go back from knowing God to any elemental principle once that elemental principle has been shown to as what it really is scripturally. And here, the law has been fulfilled in Christ. They had been brought to faith by trusting Jesus without being under the law, without even really knowing the law. And the Judaizers are trying to take them back. And it's interesting because the next verse explains the nature of the things the Judaizers were especially pushing on them. In verse 10, what does he say to them? You observe what? Days and months and seasons and years. And as pagans, they did. Yes. There were pagan holidays, holy days, where they would observe, you know, different things the planets were doing and whatnot. But now the Judaizers are here. We know that the two things that were supremely important to the intertestamental Judaizers were circumcision and Sabbath keeping. And now they're keeping the Sabbaths. Yes. It's so fascinating to me that he is really equating and superimposing the Jewish observances onto the pagan observances and saying, look, these things are essentially the same. With Jesus here, with Jesus risen from the dead, having taken all your sins to the cross, if you go back and observe Sabbaths and Passovers, or even if it's only the weekly Sabbath, that is idolatry. That is falling from grace, as he will say later. So he goes on in verse 11 and says, you're wanting to do all this. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. What's he saying? He's not sure they grasp the gospel. Because when you understand the gospel, you don't start trying to perfect yourself with your own works. You don't go back to the law. You comprehend that Christ died for you. He nailed that law to the cross. He disarmed Satan. You have a new priest. You have a new priesthood. You have a new law of liberty. All of that is a reality. And it isn't until you believe that reality that you're born again. That's right. It was interesting, just in preparing for this podcast, I went back and watched the video of our Pastor Gary teaching through Galatians when we first began Loma Linda Word Search, and this was a video from 2014. I remembered that he had had a really powerful teaching through this passage, and I went and watched it, and I heard him say, Paul is not sure these people are saved, just like you said. He's not sure they're saved, because he said they were being told to add the law And he actually said, if you know Jesus, you can't go back and add in Sabbaths and food laws. You can't do that and perfect yourself with God. You can't do that to recommend yourself to God. If you think that you're going to do that in order to become sanctified or more pleasing to God, or that this would be evidence that you love God, then you don't know the gospel. You aren't trusting Jesus alone. I remember how confusing this was to me when I was first leaving because 
but I love God and I want to please him and I want to obey him. And this is how I show him that, you know, by caring about what he said. And I didn't know yet how to ask myself the real questions that got right underneath it all. What happens if you don't keep the Sabbath? Right. What happens if you don't, I don't know, fill in the blank, whatever it was that I felt like I had to do to show God I loved him. I didn't realize how much of my own sanctification and salvation I was placing at my feet yeah, and not entrusting to Christ. Yeah. You, you have to get under it. You have to think about the logical conclusions, reverse the questions, you yes. know, um, the people who say, no, I'm not saved by Sabbath keeping. Okay. If you quit your Sabbath keeping, will you lose your salvation? And then it's crickets. <laughs> you know, you really have to dig underneath your assumptions when you're leaving Adventism. Absolutely true. You know, when we were talking about all of this before the podcast, Richard was sitting and talking with us as he usually does. And he said, there's a very real way in which what was really happening was that the Judaizers were teaching the Galatians to distrust the priesthood of Jesus. And Nikki, this is what Adventism has done. They have, through Ellen White's teaching, suppressed the true nature of the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek that Hebrews 7 explains. Because Hebrews 7, I absolutely never tracked with this as an Adventist. It never pierced through my consciousness, even though I read it. Hebrews 7 says that with a change of the priesthood, there has to come a change of the law. And that statement came after a whole explanation of the fact that the Mosaic law was based on, was founded on the Levitical priesthood. The priesthood is what determined the nature of the law. So, if the priesthood changes, the law has to change. If anybody, if the Judaizers to the Galatians or the Adventists to its members come along and say, you have to keep the Sabbath, you need to observe the food laws, these things are not limited to Israel, these things are not limited to the whole Mosaic Covenant, but they're for everybody for all time, which is not provable in Scripture, but that's what they say, then you are negating the priesthood of Jesus. You're negating the fact that he is a priest after the order of a man who lived hundreds of years before there was a law. Melchizedek, as the priest of Salem, was not under the law. He predated the law. And that's the kind of priesthood Jesus has. And Nikki, what have Adventists done with their Bible story illustrations of Jesus? Well, he's there to point us to the Decalogue. Yeah, like you said in one of our recent podcasts, he stands there at the end of days with those who are saved pointing to the Ten Commandments. He's also pictured as a Levitical priest with the garb that's described that Aaron wore, including a Urim and a Thummim. What does Jesus need a Urim and a Thummim for? That's the openness of God. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, all to say... Taking people back to the law is negating the finished work of Christ, is changing who Jesus is, is giving him a different identity, a different priesthood. It's not the priesthood of the biblical Jesus. It's a false religion. And in case you think we're overstating this, Nikki, we've got some stuff to share that we found in Ellen White's writings this week. It just was so interesting to me that this particular passage, which so directly exposes and shines the light on the untruth of the Adventist teachings of the gospel, 
this passage is so blurred to Adventists. They don't even see what it's saying. And I wanted to say, why is this so hard to see? And then we found Ellen White's quotes. And this is not exhaustive by any means. There were a lot more that we didn't copy. But we're going to read a few and talk through it. So I'll read the first one, and you can read the second. We'll go on like that. Is that all right? Sounds good. Okay, here we go. This is from the Review and Herald from 1898, February 9. She said, it was the transgression of the law of God that made this suffering necessary, and yet men harbor the thought and give expression to the suggestions of Satan through those who trample upon the law of God that all this suffering was to make the law of non-effect. Deceived and blinded by the great transgressor, they tell the people that there is no law, or that if they keep the commandments of God in this dispensation— They have fallen from grace. What a delusion is this that Satan has fastened upon human minds? Well, what is she saying here constitutes falling from grace? Well, she's saying that those who say that the death of Christ (laughs) brought an end to the law, basically, she's saying have fallen from grace. She says that we claim that if you keep the commandments of God in this dispensation, then you're fallen from grace. She's Actually summarizing Galatians and yes. then and then claiming that this is a satanic deception. I was kind of shocked when I read this. Now, as an Adventist, I would have had to muddle my way through it because it kind of sounds pious. But she is doing exactly what you said. She's summarizing Galatians that in this, if you want to call it a dispensation, on this side of the cross, after Jesus has fulfilled the curse of the law and broken it and risen from death, she's saying that if we now say that the law is not for us, that that's a satanic deception. She is calling Paul a false teacher, and she's calling the book of Galatians false. Essentially, Mm -hmm. that's what she's doing here. So, no wonder we were confused. And this is the woman who is divinely inspired to interpret Scripture for all time for the Adventist church. And this is also the woman who says, don't take my word for anything. Go to the Bible. I give you the Bible. Well, anybody who speaks out of their mouth with two different ideas at the same time is crazy making and is not telling the truth. We were deceived and confused. And of course, as Adventists, what are we going to do? We can't walk away from the Sabbath. So, we can't even read Galatians because of what Ellen White said. Now, you know, I know a lot of people are going to say, oh, I've never read Ellen. I don't see the Sabbath being discounted here. And I want to say, you don't think you've read Ellen, but you've been taught Adventism. And Adventism is shaped entirely by Ellen's interpretation. Mm -hmm. So, you don't have to read her to get her. So, she goes on in that same publication. She says, when the theory... That the law of Jehovah is not binding upon the human family as adopted and taught. Man is blinded to his terrible ruin. He cannot discern it. Then God has no moral standard by which to measure character and to govern the heavenly universe. Get this. The world's unfallen and this fallen world. Could God have abolished the law in order to meet man in his fallen condition and yet have maintained his honor? As governor of the universe, Christ need not have died. But the death of Christ is the convincing, everlasting argument that the law of God is as unchanging as his throne. In the place of the great sacrifices abating one jot 
or one tittle of the Father's law, that sacrifice exalts the law. It proclaims to worlds unfallen... I can't can't say that without laughing. And to the fallen race that God's law is changeless and that he will maintain his authority and sustain his law. Did you know God was a governor? (laughs) Did you know there were unfallen worlds? (laughs) Unfortunately, yes, from childhood. Yes, I did too. Are you as confused by that paragraph as I am? I mean, I know what she's saying, but I have to read and reread it to get it. You know, the argument that without the Ten Commandments, there's no standard is just ridiculous. First of all, Christ is the standard. Yes. And he never committed idolatry. He never committed adultery. He never lied. He never stole anything. On and on. He is moral. He is God. He is perfect. Exactly. He's perfect. He's the standard. Thank you, Lord, when we believe him. We're imputed with God's righteousness in Christ. Yes. That's what Ellen did not teach us. No, she didn't. And we had to collect our righteousness through law-keeping. It was the uh, yellow brick road (laughs) to, to salvation. She just had a fundamental misunderstanding or a demonic commitment to a dark deception. I can't think it's anything but that. Because for someone to so systematically, consistently, purposefully denigrate the nature of Christ, his finished work, what he's doing in heaven now, what he did on the cross, what he did on earth, for her to misrepresent him so thoroughly, that can only be nefarious. It has to be. She had a long career, and she never wavered from teaching a false Jesus. Now, she changed the way she talked about him. She became more nearly Trinitarian sounding, but she never gave up her anti-Trinitarian stance, or we might even call her later one a tritheistic stance, but she never owned that Jesus was the same substance as the Father, who is the same substance as the Spirit, who is the same substance as Jesus. That was never something she acknowledged. She has a different Jesus, and we learned a different Jesus. And we learned a Jesus who supposedly upheld the law on the cross and gave it to us as our judge. That's not what Scripture teaches. Here's another one from that same publication. Were the law understood apart from Christ? And I want to say, wait a minute, why is this even something she's saying? The law entirely cannot be seen apart from Christ. Christ was plan C. Yeah, the way we learned it. Were the law understood apart from Christ, it would have a crushing power upon sinful men, blotting the sinner out of existence. But by understanding the law in connection with Christ, receiving him by faith as his substitute and surety, man sees himself as a prisoner of hope. The truth as it is in Jesus is an acquaintance with the holy, just, and good law of God as this law is elevated and its immutability demonstrated in Christ. He magnified the law, expanded its every precept, and in his obedience left man an example that he also may meet its demands. So there's that phrase, that phrase I hated even as an Adventist because it sounded so pious and it never made sense to me. The truth as it is in Jesus, and I'd want to say, what is that? 
Now, I know there are different places where Adventist publications have tried to define it. Here is one very clear Ellen White definition. The truth as it is in Jesus is an acquaintance with the holy, just, and good law of God as this law is elevated and demonstrated in Christ. No, no, the truth in Christ, the truth in Jesus is not the law in any sense. Jesus himself is the truth. And when we are in him, the truth of Jesus defines our lives, but it's not the law. I don't understand how Adventists keep Colossians in their Bible. How do you keep Colossians in there? If, if he disarmed Satan by removing the law with its demands, by nailing it to the cross, 2, 14, and 15, how can she say he upheld it? He fulfilled it. This is a fulfilled document. We've just read this in Galatians too. Yeah. And to try to hang on to it is to misuse it and is to change what the document actually was intended to do. Yes. That's the other thing I keep noticing in her writing. She she claims that people say God abolished the law. He did not abolish the law. Right. He fulfilled it. This is profoundly different. In fact, Hebrews 8.13 ends with the word that the law, the old covenant is now obsolete. That's different from abolish. And it's obsolete because it has been fulfilled. Jesus himself is the fulfillment. We look to him. And if we don't, if we go back and hang on to the law after Jesus has fulfilled it and made the law obsolete, we're actually breaking the law. We're misusing it. We're doing something illegal with it. This next quote is from volume 19 of Letters in Manuscript. This is in Manuscript 2. It was written in 1904. The expression of your opinions regarding the doctrine of justification, the assertion that a man once in grace is always in grace, does not prove these opinions to be true. By the teaching of the doctrines that you have lately made prominent in your discourses, souls will be turned away from a plain, thus saith the Lord. The theories that you have been presenting are not in harmony with the word of God and will lead you away from the Sabbath of the fourth commandment. There's the golden calf. Yes. And once in grace, always in grace is an interesting, <laughs> it's an interesting phrase. It's not one that I've heard before. And it's hard to know if someone was preaching that or if she was, again, um, redefining what somebody was trying to say. I agree because we don't know what the man was saying to whom she wrote this letter. Mm-hmm. But I thought that this was a really interesting quotation because it actually tips the hand. This is the real issue behind all of Ellen White's insistence that we have to keep the law. You know, Ellen White did not seem to be worried about the ninth commandment of not bearing false witness. (laughs) That woman published so many volumes of testimonies to people where she supposedly exposed their secret lives and their personal secrets to the whole world without talking to them first. I mean, was she telling the truth? We don't even always know. But certainly she was bearing false witness against Jesus. Certainly she was bearing false witness against what he did on earth and the nature of the new covenant. She was bearing false witness against the word of God. She didn't worry about the ninth commandment, but oh, the fourth. We have to find ways to explain that the law is for us so that people will not give up the Sabbath. And for Adventists, the Sabbath is part of their salvation package. I think I can say that with an unqualified statement. 
what Adventist do you know, Nikki, who's willing to not do the Sabbath or not honor the Sabbath in their hearts at least? Honestly, even the people who are leaving Adventism, they can give up every point of Adventism that they're aware of and stay because they don't know what to do about the Sabbath. And that tells me they don't know what Jesus did. Mm -hmm. If you're staying because you don't know what to do about the Sabbath, you don't understand what Jesus did. And we have Ellen to thank for the influence of that doctrine of demons, which has so permeated the consciousness of a whole denomination. I don't even want to call it a denomination, a whole organization that masquerades as Christianity, and it isn't. This is not biblical Christianity. There's one more here from this 19th volume of Letters and Manuscripts, uh, same volume, same year, 1904, and it's related to that phrase, once in grace, always in grace, which again, I've never heard anywhere else either worded that way. But here's her sentence. Were the once in grace, always in grace doctrine true, Satan would never have fallen from heaven. His case is a demonstration of the sure result of transgressing God's law. Okay, so let's just assume that once in grace, always in grace is her false definition of the security of the believer. Yes. Even if we assume that, yeah. the woman did not understand what grace was. No. She did not understand that God did not save the angels. Grace wasn't even offered to us for salvation until after the cross. Right. So, Satan falling has nothing to do with anything. And her definition of Satan falling was that he said, oh, I can't keep your Ten Commandments. They're not yes. fair. Right. So, that's not even what happened. No. And God doesn't tell us the story of Satan. Mm -hmm. He only tells us enough so we understand he exists and that he is a fallen angel who leads the pack of fallen angels. That's all we really know. He doesn't tell us the angel's story, but she has quite a comprehensive story of how Jesus begged Satan to repent, but he refused. And so he, you know, sealed his own fate. That's not in the Bible. This is a nonsense statement that sounds pious, but it has nothing to do with grace that's offered to us on the basis of Jesus shed blood for our sins. That grace is not what she's talking about here. She seems to be talking about the idea that God could overlook sin. If he had wanted to, he could just overlook sin and forgive. No, Scripture's very clear. Forgiveness requires blood. God is just. Yeah. His wrath and His justice and His mercy and His compassion and His love are all inseparable, and it is not love if justice isn't involved. This next one made me laugh. <laughs> this is also from Letters and Manuscripts. This is volume 11, and this one was written in 1896. Because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His only begotten Son into your hearts, and your voice, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Howbeit then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them, which by nature are no gods. But now after that ye have known God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Ye observe days and months and times and years. Galatians 4, 6 through 10. Then this is Ellen. The observance of holidays in this country is a great evil. 
We want not to give sanction to the days and many traditions that are brought in. We need not pay any heed to them. Well, now we know why they don't celebrate Easter. Exactly. (laughs) Or why traditionally they wouldn't celebrate Christmas either. Well, they were cousins of the Jehovah's Witnesses, weren't they? Absolutely. And I felt like a pirate reading this in (laughs) (laughs) in the King James Version. You know, this is actually quite funny because she's just quoted the passage that our podcast is about today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she's applying it to national holidays. <laughs> I mean, listen, I know it's not funny. It's it's actually really sad, but it's also comical because we believed that in a way the sun rose and set on Ellen's words and interpretations. She was the lesser light. She yeah. was the spirit of prophecy. She was the woman leading us all into the last days, and we were going to usher in Christ, she was everything to us. Even if we didn't necessarily agree with everything she said or like everything about her, you know, and we would kind of bend a little bit and try to press her into context while that was just from her day. Whatever it was we did to minimize her, we also very much elevated her. We thought so much of her. So now to read some of these ridiculous comments, this is about national holidays No wonder we didn't get it. (laughs) It's embarrassing. I know. (laughs) When Paul says, I fear for you that maybe I've labored over you in vain. You're observing days and months, seasons and years. Why are you going back to those elemental principles? Paul is not talking about Christmas and Easter. He is not talking about birthdays. He's not even talking about the 4th of July. (laughs) He is talking about biblical holidays that God gave Israel to keep that were shadows of Christ, as Colossians 2, 16 and 17 says. He is talking about observances that God gave Israel pre-cross so that they would keep in mind all the ways that God was asking them to worship Him, to recognize that He alone could atone for their sin, that they were depraved, that they had to bring their offerings to Him, but that He would forgive them also when they did. Paul is saying, don't go back to the shadows. And if you do, I'm not sure you've understood the gospel. And I want to say to anybody listening who is still clinging on to Adventist traditions, I know how hard it is. I know the emotional struggle of trying to give up the Sabbath, of trying to deal in one's head with the implications of the food laws and the lifestyle mandates. I know how hard this is to untangle, but we have to know what our source of truth is. And if the scripture is God's word, it can't be God's word along with Ellen White. They disagree with each other. And we have to decide where we're going to place our faith. Is it going to be in God's word where he reveals his true son who died for our sin? Or are we going to believe how Ellen White told us to think about it? So we just want to plead with you today. If you've struggled with this passage, if you still feel a strong emotional pull to keep the Sabbath, know that the shadows were powerful for a reason. God gave them to foreshadow His Son. But if you have seen what Scripture says about the Son, if you have seen who He is, that He took your sin in His body on the cross, that He died for your sin, He paid the price once for all for everyone who believes, 
And all who will may come, if you understand that that's who Jesus is and that's what he did, that he died, he was buried, and he rose on the third day, and that he broke the curse of the law, the law has no more power over you, over me, or over anyone. Now, Jesus himself is the fulfillment of the law, and our righteousness is in him. And if people refuse to believe in the Son, That is the thing that marks them as unbelievers and not transferred into eternal life. If you haven't placed all your trust in Jesus, understanding that you need a Savior and that He came to save you from yourself and from your sin, we ask that you trust Him today and realize what Paul means when he says, don't go back to the shadows. Don't make all of the gospel teaching of non-effect in your life. Trust Jesus. If you have questions or comments for us, write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to sign up for weekly emails delivering new material to your inbox every Friday. And you can also find transcripts for this podcast as well as links to the YouTube channel and to donate to the ministry should you feel called to do so. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. And join us next week as we continue our study through Galatians chapter 4. We'll see you then.